Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of Matthew. Who is Jesus? Have you ever asked somebody that question? If you have, you might have been surprised by the responses that you got. And you were probably surprised that many of the responses had nothing to do with the biblical portrait of Jesus. There's widespread confusion in our culture about who Jesus is. Just this week, I heard of a person in L.A. who's a fortune teller, and she claims to channel the Spirit of Jesus to give her people, her clients, advice on their lives. And she claims that Jesus has a deep voice with a slight British accent. For her services, she charges a mere $1,100 an hour. Now, this misunderstanding about Jesus seems to be exacerbated this time of year when we decorate our yards and our homes with nativity scenes. Now, most people are familiar with this scene of a a baby boy in a manger surrounded by animals and some other characters, but few people can describe the religious significance of that scene. Another thing that happens during this time of year is major newspapers run articles about who Jesus is. There's an interest in our culture about knowing the answer to that question. Now, if you've ever read some of those articles in major newspapers, you'll be very disappointed about the distortions that are in them. I did a a brief search, I mean a very brief search, and uh, I came across an article in the Wall Street Journal called, What Should Jesus Look Like? Or a popular article in the New York Times was this, searching for a Jesus who looks more like me. The opening paragraph reads, close your eyes and imagine that Jesus is in front of you. Is the man kneeling in the Garden of Gethsemane Chinese? Is the man sitting at the table of the Last Supper Navajo? Is the man dragging his cross towards Golgotha Nigerian? Or is the crucified figure a woman? Now the author goes on to describe his own journey of seeking a Jesus who not only looks like him, but embodies his values. The problem with these approaches is that if you begin with yourself in order to find Jesus, you will never find the true Jesus. Thankfully, God does not leave us in the dark about who Jesus is. In fact, the Gospel of Matthew begins, the very first verse of this book, the first verse of the New Testament, begins by declaring who Jesus is. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And our text today in Matthew 17 continues that theme of revealing to us who Jesus is. So Matthew 17, if you're able, would you stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word? Matthew 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. 
and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And there, behold, there appeared with him Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him. But they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. You may be seated. Just like people today have questions about who Jesus is, people in the Gospel of Matthew have questions about who Jesus is as well. And one of the themes that develops is as Jesus progressively reveals his identity to people, there is increasing opposition to him. And this is hard for the disciples to deal with. The twin themes developing simultaneously, a clearer understanding of Jesus and increased opposition. It's hard for the disciples to reconcile those realities. So if you recall chapter 16, in some ways that was a high point in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And then he asks Peter, but who do you say that I am? And for once, Peter answers rightly. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus blesses him and affirms that answer. And then Jesus goes on to explain that being the Christ, being the deliverer, means that he will suffer in the place of his people, that he will die, but he will be raised again. And Peter can't handle that reality. And he actually says to Jesus, no, that's, that can't happen to you. Side note, don't ever correct Jesus. Uh, but Jesus rebukes him for that, rebukes him sternly, because Peter doesn't understand what it means to be the Messiah. And Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on to say what it means to follow a suffering Savior is to follow him in the way of suffering. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus explains to them who he is and then demands that we follow. The main point of our text this morning is this, that seeing Jesus clearly, coming to a clear understanding of who Jesus is, sustains our faith even in hard times. Seeing Jesus clearly sustains our faith even in hard times. And Matthew 17 
is a continuation of that theme, and our text breaks down into three main sections. Jesus, the glorious Son of Man, Jesus, the beloved Son of God, and Jesus, the suffering and soon returning Son of Man. When we turn to 17, uh, chapter 17, we need to back up just a little bit into 16 to see how this leads into it. So in 16, verse 27, Jesus says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus is looking forward to his second coming, where he will come in glory and judge the world. And then he says in 28, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here, namely Peter, James, and John, who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom or coming in his kingship. You see, Jesus is using this term, Son of Man, because it's a a flexible term. In the Old Testament, Son of Man can can just be a reference to a human being, say in Ezekiel. But Son of Man can also have this nuance of this glorious figure from heaven, like in Daniel chapter 7. And Jesus is using this flexible term to increasingly help them see that although fully human, he is also fully God. Making that declaration, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and he led them up on the mountain by themselves. He gets them away from the hustle and bustle of things down in the valley, away from the questions of the crowd, the opposition of the religious leaders, and he takes them to a mountain place. Now, God had a pattern of meeting with his people on the mountain, and part of that reason is probably because the very setting of a mountain focuses us beyond ourselves. Someone said that no one stands at the foot of the mountain and says, look how big I am. Standing at the foot of the mountain focuses us beyond ourselves, to majesty beyond ourselves. And verse 2 says, matter-of-factly, he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Now, the full reality of what that means, I don't don't think we can comprehend. But we see a window into the glory of the Son of Man. We see Jesus here transfigured, and That word is appropriate because it captures some of the way that this is just beyond our language. It's different than being transformed. If someone's transformed, they become something that they're not. This word transfigured is communicating that we're seeing more clearly the reality that already exists. He was transfigured and then there appeared with him. Moses and Elijah talking with him. And it's somewhat unexpected. Uh, Why do these people appear with him? And why do these particular people come with him? Well, Moses and Elijah, obviously significant people in the Old Testament, had met God on the mountain before. They had mediated God's revelation to his people. 
Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets. But the main point of them being there is to make an argument from the lesser to the greater. As great as Moses and Elijah were, the Son of Man is so much greater. They were merely forerunners. The role of Moses and the role of Elijah was to point to the Christ. This is a theme that the author of the book of Hebrews communicates clearly in the beginning of his letter. He says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He spoke by Moses and Elijah, for example. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. The Son is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The Son is incomparable. So Moses and Elijah appear there in order to put the spotlight on the Son. How much greater is the revelation through the Son? Now, the way that Matthew describes this scene is deliberately drawing on an Old Testament text, Exodus chapter 24. So there are a number of elements that are paralleled here. So there's a six-day interval in both texts. There's three witnesses. They are on a high mountain. There's a cloud that surrounds them, a voice from the cloud and the shining face. This deliberate illusion to this Old Testament text is, again, to make a point about a contrast. Because when Moses meets with God on the mountain, his face shines as a reflection of God's glory. When Jesus is on the mountain and he is transfigured before them, we see his glory and he is declared to be son of God on the mountain. That's why Daniel opened this to say, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. The glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When we see this allusion to this Old Testament text, it's to make the point of how much greater is Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Mark and Luke tell us Peter didn't know what to say or Peter didn't know what he was saying. So he says something though, and he says, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Kind of a strange request. Uh, let, let me make some tents for you. It seems, though, that Peter has failed to see the distinction. He, he treats Moses and Elijah and Jesus as if they're all of equal glory. He's not seeing the distinction between Jesus and everyone else. When we see this mountain scene, we get a clearer window into who Jesus is. We get a window into his glory. 
Can you remember significant times in your life maybe where you came to a clearer understanding of who Jesus really was? Or can you remember a time when you were wrestling with some new truth about Jesus? I can remember for myself uh, the first time I read the book of Revelation. I was young, maybe eight or ten, somewhere in there, and, and I was thinking of Jesus in terms of, of a baby boy in a manger or, or a, a Savior suffering on the cross. And when I read in Revelation about this conquering king, I was shocked, and I was like, wow, that is Jesus? I was coming to a clearer understanding of the full glory of who Jesus is. That's what should happen in our hearts when we read a text like Matthew 17. We should begin to see in greater clarity who Jesus is. Growing in our faith involves increasingly growing in the understanding of who Jesus is. And we should sharpen our understanding of Jesus in a way that will fuel our worship. Well, this scene is a bit hard for the disciples to understand. So God the Father intervenes and declares Jesus to be the beloved Son of God. Verse 5, He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, the the scene of a cloud overshadowing them is is reminiscent of scenes in the Old Testament where God meets with his people. And more recently, this is reminiscent of the baptism in which God the Father makes a similar declaration about Jesus. When God the Father says, this is my beloved son, he's drawing on an Old Testament text again. He's actually drawing on Psalm 2, among other texts, that say this. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me. So this is the declaration of God. That the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. When God the Father declares on the mountain that this is my beloved son, what he is saying is that this is the promised rescuer. This is the Davidic Messiah. This is the forever king prophesied in 2 Samuel 7 in Psalm 2. And he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And again, that is another Old Testament allusion, this time to Isaiah 42. And Matthew has already cited this in chapter 12. And and he says this, this is what Isaiah 42 says. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. 
by alluding to these two texts, God the Father is declaring that Jesus is that hope for rescuer in the line of David. Jesus is that promised servant from Isaiah. Don't miss this declaration by the Father. My Son, with whom I am well pleased. You see, the Father takes pleasure in the Son. The implicit call in this declaration is that we should delight in the Son even as the Father delights in the Son. Have you ever heard someone talk about Jesus as if he were a mere artifact to be examined and not a Savior to be cherished? I'm not advocating non-thinking reflections about Jesus. I'm suggesting that the more deeply that we understand Christ, the more deeply our affections for Christ will be fueled and our worship will be fueled as well. One pastor said that a non-treasured Christ is a non-saving Christ. And what he's trying to say in that is that if we don't, cherish Jesus, we really haven't come to an understanding of who Jesus is in all of his glory. If we don't delight in the Son, we don't really know the Son. When we see Jesus rightly, our affections for him increase correspondingly. With this declaration of who the Son is, God the Father gives us a command. Listen to Him. A simple, straightforward command, listen to Him. And again, this is a phrase that is alluding to an Old Testament text. This time, Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. That's a prophet like Moses. From among you, from your brothers, It is to him that you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear the voice of the Lord my God or see the great fire anymore, lest I die. They were anticipating a prophet like Moses who would be the revelation of God the Father. The call for us is straightforward. Listen to the Son. And listening to the Son doesn't just mean that we hear the Son, but we hear the Son, we understand His message, we see Him rightly and obey. It's like when I was was teaching my son to throw a, a ball. Now, some of you have had the experience of teaching someone how to throw like a baseball. It can be a painful experience. It definitely can test your patience. Uh, But I remember teaching him, you know, I taught him how to step rightly, to square up, and to to throw the ball. He kept stepping with the wrong foot. And I said to him, Luke, you're not listening to me. Now, I didn't mean he wasn't hearing me. I mean that he wasn't responding rightly to what I was saying. God the Father calls us to listen to his Son to obey all that he has said. 
So think back in the Gospel of Matthew to the calls of Christ. Think of the Sermon on the Mount with these radical calls to be proactive in forgiveness and reconciliation, to diligently pursue holiness, to assiduously tell the truth, to graciously love even those who oppose you, to hope in God, not money or things. Listening to Jesus means that we obey these commands on the basis of his authority. Now you need to hear this as well. The instructions of this king are for our good. There is joy in following the king. And he doesn't leave us without the ability to follow him. It's in fact by his spirit that we are enabled to live this way. This is one of the moments where the disciples actually kind of get it right. In verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. They rightly understood who Jesus is. And Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they're going to see that this is really about shining the spotlight on Jesus because they saw no one but Jesus only. This scene is about helping us focus on Jesus, about helping us come to a clearer understanding of who Jesus is. And as they come down the mountain, they have a conversation that helps them see with more clarity again who Jesus is. Uh, Jesus is the suffering and soon returning Son of Man. The suffering and soon returning Son of Man. As they were coming down the mountain, uh, Jesus commanded them, tell no one this vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So there will come a time when the disciples are commanded to tell people about Jesus. You think of another mountain scene concluding the Gospel of Matthew where he tells them to go to all the nations and declare the message about the king. But now he says, don't tell anyone about this particular vision. And the reason for that is they don't yet fully understand who Jesus is. They, they don't yet fully understand why he will be resurrected, which entails that he will die. He's got more training and explaining to do with this, these disciples so that they don't feel a disconnect between Jesus being the glorious Son of God and the suffering Son of Man. This leads to questions by the disciples. And the disciples say, well, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Now, the scribes are, are reading the Old Testament, particularly Malachi 3 through 4, and they're anticipating an Elijah-like figure. So Malachi 4 says this, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statues and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children 
and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. When the scribes and the religious leaders read Malachi chapter 4, they anticipated an Elijah-like character before the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus affirms that in some ways. He says uh, that Elijah does come, and they come to see that that Elijah-like figure is actually John the Baptist. So John the Baptist, as an Elijah-like figure, has come, but then there's this future pointing element, and he will restore all things. There will come a time when an Elijah-like figure will restore all things, where verses 6 and following of this prophecy in Malachi will come to their full conclusion, that the hearts of the fathers will be turned towards their children and the children towards their fathers. Jesus is affirming an already and not yet coming of an Elijah-like figure. Elijah has already come in John the Baptist. And another Elijah-like figure will come. Before the Son of Man comes a second time, this time in all of his glory. Jesus reinforces again to them. So also the Son of Man. The Son of Man, like John the Baptist, will certainly suffer at their hands. Jesus, having just displayed his glory, having just had the declaration that he is the Son of God, reminds them that as their Savior, he will suffer. Just like the Old Testament prophets were persecuted, just like John the Baptist suffered, Jesus will suffer. And he points us forward for all of those who follow this suffering Savior must deny themselves, take up their crosses, and follow him. In the Gospel of Matthew, we have seen that as Jesus increasingly reveals who he is, there is increasing opposition to him and his ministry. In the next few days and weeks, it will become increasingly hard for the disciples to believe the promises of Matthew chapter 16. That the gospel message will advance and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Because they will see this Son of God, they will see this Messiah suffer and be crucified. They'll witness that as the culmination of the opposition to Jesus. So what is the main point of chapter 17 in preparing them for that soon experience? Well, the main thrust of these verses is to help us understand who Jesus is. Jesus is the glorious Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7. Jesus is the Son of God, the Davidic Deliverer from Psalm chapter 2. Jesus is the servant from Isaiah 42. Jesus is the prophet like Moses from Deuteronomy 18. 
And Matthew reminds us that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. We call his name Jesus because he has saved his people from their sins. Jesus is incomparable. That's what Matthew 17 is trying to communicate to us. And the question then is, why do I need to know that? Why do I need to come to a clearer understanding of who Jesus is? Well, you need to know that first and foremost because there is salvation in no other name. There's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is only this Jesus, this Jesus declared in the Gospels that can save. It's only this Jesus who bears your sins on Calvary. It's only this Jesus who raises up in victory. There's no other name under heaven and earth by which we must be saved. The other thing that this vision does is it creates in us resilient faith. Seeing Jesus more clearly sustains our faith, even in hardships. Having a small understanding of Jesus will produce a faith that won't weather the hard times. Recall that Jesus had just told his disciples that you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. And then he reveals who he is with more clarity. You know, Peter looked back on this moment as one of those moments when he saw Jesus for who he is, And in the midst of hardship, that sustained him. He describes this in in 2 Peter, the very first chapter. He said, I think it's right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Peter anticipates his soon martyrdom. He's suffering, and he's writing to people who are suffering. What will help them in their suffering? Well, he goes on. In verse 15, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, where is Peter an eyewitness of his majesty? For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. You see, Peter, in the midst of his suffering, writing to a people who were suffering, tells us that seeing Jesus more clearly will sustain our faith 
even in hard times. Now, some of you are saying, but, but I wasn't there on the mountain. How do I see Jesus more clearly? Well, Peter goes on in verse 19. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. How will you see Jesus more clearly in order to sustain your faith in hard times? You will do it by digging deeply into the Scriptures. You'll do it by opening God's Word to texts like Matthew 17. And as you see Jesus more clearly, your affections for Him will be fueled, and it's that that will sustain your faith even in hard times. Seeing Jesus more clearly sustains our faith even in hard times. Let's pray. Father, you are good. We thank you for the goodness given to us in your word that reveals to us the source of our joy, Christ himself. God, our prayer is during this holiday season that you would fix our eyes on Jesus. Help us to understand who he is with increasing clarity. God, we pray that that will fuel our worship so that as a church we can sing songs that rejoice in the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of your Son. Give us the grace to do that today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.